Good evening, everybody. Uh, we are, in one sense, starting a new series this evening, in another, we're continuing an old one. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, of course, Samuel is one book, really. Uh, so, in a sense, we're continuing on the story uh, where we left off last time. One Samuel finished with the death of Israel's king, Saul. And you'll see that that's where we pick up, because of the first five words of 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to try this evening to get as far as chapter 2, verse 11. That's certainly where we're going to read. So, uh, let's turn to 2 Samuel 1, when the pages are settled. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lives. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he'd fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the arm that was on his arm, and I had brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down, and so did he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan's son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah, Behold, it is written in the book of Joshua. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen! Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. 
the blood of the slain, from the fang of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perish. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. This that's what we do. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So this is where we are today. Loyalty. Uh, 2 Samuel 1 uh, says we're going to go up to 2.17, we're not. That's my typo. For anybody who goes far as verse 11, 11, 11. Maybe that's why I was confused. Where do your loyalties lie? Uh, we've seen uh, some major shifts, haven't we, in our culture's moral ideas over the decades. But for all of that, one thing we still really value is loyalty. You just ask uh, a football fan about their favourite player asking for a transfer. Quickly, the temperature changes towards them, or any of the Chelsea managers over the past few years. We use uh, loyalty cards in cafes to get that precious free tenth coffee. Our businesses offer loyalty bonuses to employees of long service. Now, look, being loyal to your local cafe is not really very significant, is it? But sometimes loyalty is a moral duty. Cheating on your partner is not okay. Having an affair is okay, loyalty matters. We know, don't we, though, that loyalty can be abused. There have been occasions where uh, leaders, whether in church or in government, have asked for blind loyalty. 
And some leaders have tried to use the Bible to command that. They might have even used the sort of language that we find here about the Lord's anointed. And you shouldn't resist the Lord's anointed talking about themselves. But of course the problem with that, apart from lots of other problems, is that they are the Lord's anointed. No US president is the Lord's anointed. King Charles III isn't the Lord's anointed in this sense. The leaders of the church here are the Lord's anointed in the sense here either. The Lord's anointed refers to someone very specific in the Bible. It's God's chosen king. And today there is one of those. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the king. And the Christian's loyalty, above every other loyalty in their life, is to him. This book of Samuel, in parts one and now part two, prepare us for the coming of the Christ. We see these little kings in foretaste of him. And as we meet them, they tell us why we need a king. Why we need that king to be God's king, and not the kind of king we choose. Israel shows us the mess we make of that in one second. And they show us what sort of king he'll be. King Saul has dominated part one, but here as part two begins, we see the crown pass from Saul to David. The king changes, but the need for loyalty to God's king remains. And we're going to see how and why as we move through. So two parts today, part one, chapter one, and then chapter two. Firstly, chapter one. The king is dead. Chapter 1, 117. Have we seen together there how part 2 of Samuel begins? Chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Saul. Let's remember how that happened, shall we? Just flip back a page to 1 Samuel 31. This is where we were last time we were in Samuel. Now have a look down there at 31, verse 1. Remember that um, Israel are battling the Philistines. David is off dealing with the Amalekites elsewhere. But Saul is being hunted down by the Philistines. Verse 3, Saul is badly wounded by the archers, notice. And in verse 4, he's in such a terrible state that he begs his armour bearer to finish him off. But notice verse 4, his armour bearer is too afraid to do so. He knows who Saul is. This is not just a man, it's not even just a king, this is God's king, so he won't do it. And so verse 4, in verse 4, Saul has to take his own sword and fall upon it. I'll flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. How should we then feel about the death of Saul, given what we've seen? Or more importantly, how should David feel about the death of Saul? Because David has a lot to gain from it, doesn't he? Remember, he has personal interests in Saul's death to some degree. Saul has made multiple attempts on David's life through one Samuel, over and over again, forcing David to flee. So Saul's death means, presumably, David can stop running. And then there's the question of the throne and the crown. Remember that in 1 Samuel, God has promised the kingdom and the throne to David. But the great obstacle to him receiving the, the promised throne is Saul. And over, again, over and over again, David has refused to take that into his own hands and kill Saul, though he has opportunity to do so. So isn't this the perfect outcome? Saul dies without David raising his hand against him. And then we remember, we zoom out and remember that Saul wasn't a good king. So isn't this a good outcome for Israel? And doesn't it prove as well the lessons we learned way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2? Remember that Hannah's prayer? 
where she taught us through her prayer that God opposes the proud and brings down the godless mighty. So when this young Amalekite man comes running to David with the news of Saul's death, if he, if he was aware of any of that background, he could have reasonably expected a warm welcome from David. He might have been thinking, well, David will make me his right-hand man when he hears what's happened. And if I say that I did the deed with my own hands, I'll be treated like a hero. I can retire and then the royal reward. He'll, he'll give me a job in his cabinet. He'll give me a coastal mansion. I, I can live a life of luxury. And so this young man's newsbringer reaches David and he falls at his feet and he recounts the battle. And what do you think of the version, his version? Verses 8 to 10, should we remember what he says? And so he's recounting a conversation he says he has with Saul. There in chapter 1, verse 8, he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And then I took his royal uniform and brought it daily to you. So here he is with Saul's royal trinkets and crown and so on. He hands it to David and then watches in shock, verse 11, as David and his men, instead of throwing a party, tear their clothes. And then verse 12, they mourn and fast and weep until the evening. And as if that wasn't bad enough for this messenger, verse 15, his reward for killing Saul, we learn, is death. And we ask ourselves, why? And someone says, well, he lied. Well, maybe he did lie. Maybe he twisted the account of Saul's death for whatever end. But that isn't what David gives as the reason, is it? Did you see the reasons David gives? They're there in verse 14 and 16. Have a look at me, verse 14. David doesn't pick up his lion. He says to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then again in verse 16, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is what makes this man's claim so scandalizing. What did he see as he looked at Saul on the battlefield? He saw a soldier, maybe an Israelite, maybe even a king. But what he should have seen when he looked at King Saul was God's king. Saul was a proud man. He was a murderous man. He was a bad king for Israel. But for all that, he was God's anointed. In God's mysterious plan, preparing us for Christ, God had made Saul king. He declared him to be the leader over his people. So as David says to this man here in verse 14, he should have been afraid to put out his hand to destroy the Lord's anointing. Opposing the king that God puts over us is a very serious thing. Now, look, this is all uh, a long time ago in a land and a culture far away, isn't it? But remember, this is written to prepare us for the coming of the Lord Jesus. So what should we see when we look at the Lord Jesus ourselves? Well, we're seeing that in the mornings, aren't we? We've started a new series in Mark's Gospel. If you're not in the habit of coming in the mornings, let me encourage you to do that as well. And you'll have heard in chapter 1 how Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, with God the Father saying publicly about Jesus, This is my Son. He's echoing Psalm 2. It's a Psalm of David about the eternal king that God would choose and then establish on the throne. Let me read you some of it here. Psalm 2, it is a prophecy. 
you are my son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. God echoes that psalm as if to say, This Jesus, this is my son, the king that I anoint. He acts with my authority. The rule of the world and the future belongs to him. But when you look at the Lord Jesus, you're not just looking at a good man or a great religious leader. You're looking at the glorious king I've chosen, my one and only king. Oppose him at your peril. And yet, of course, that's exactly what humanity did. God sent his chosen saviour king into the world to rescue the world, and the world crucified him. There has never been a wickeder act than that. But of course, none of us were there. What does opposition to God's king, raising our hand against God's king, look like today? Well, very simply, it means hearing his command to repent and to bow to him as king and saying no. Do we see what a serious thing that is? To oppose and refuse God's anointed king. If your knees are still unbent when it comes to King Jesus, can you hear the warning of this chapter 1 to you? Will you bow to God's king before God's judgment falls? And if we have done that, if we have bowed our knee to Jesus, do we see what a serious decision those around us are making and refusing to do it? It's so easy to get used to it, isn't it? Just a lifestyle choice, not a big deal. But if it's treason against God's king, the way David treats it as such here, it's punishable even by death. We'll take it very seriously. This is why the mission we have as a church is so urgent. We don't share the gospel and organize outreach events for fun because we've got nothing else to do. The stakes are so high for the people around us. It is a fearful thing to oppose the Lord's anointed. Which of course is why David steadfastly refused to do so all the way through 1 Samuel, despite multiple attempts on his life from Saul. But to really see the extent of David's love and loyalty, the king. Well, look at that little minute there in the second half. Chapter 1. You see how we move from prose to poetry? We use poetry don't we, to carry emotion. And this is David's lament. Well, first of all about death. Though, did you notice that it's not a private grief, it's a public grief. Did you see that in verse 18? David said it should be taught to the people of Judah. So this isn't just for his own personal use. It's to teach people something. He he wants them to respond in the right way. He wants them to take this seriously. Now death is always serious, isn't it? Christian funerals are hopeful, but they're serious occasions. Those of us who have lo lost loved ones are right to grieve them and to go on grieving. Grief isn't an ungodly thing in this context. You, you remember Jesus' grief at Lazarus' tomb? 
Even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead, he grieved. But this isn't just death, this is the death of a monarch. The death of a monarch is a serious thing too. We've seen that really closely, haven't we, over the past few weeks. So many people felt a, a deep personal loyalty to Queen Elizabeth, and despite her, I suppose, only being a constitutional monarch. And if her death was a reason for sorrow, how much more the death of God's anointed king? So interesting, isn't it? Saul, Saul fell because of his own pride. And maybe that is being hinted at here in the prayer. Do you notice how three times at least David mentions the fall of the mighty language taken from 1 Samuel to Hannah's prayer where she rebuked the proud mighty. But, but the tone here from David doesn't seem to be rebuke, it's simply sadness. David takes no joy in Saul's death because he wasn't a Philistine Goliath, he was God's anointed king. He'd been given as a gift to the people, for the people. And his lament reminds us why he was such a gift. First of all, because God's king meant security. You might have noticed lots of military image through the lament. Swords and shields and weapons of war. The, the king was a gift from God to protect his people from their enemies. But with the king dead, verse 20, their enemies will rejoice. God's king meant security, but it also meant prosperity. Did you see that in verse 24? That uh, luxury scarlet, those golden ornaments, were probably the spoils of war. God gave his people a king to raid their enemies and bless the people. And we see this so much more wonderfully, don't we, in the Lord Jesus? Jesus, who conquered the biggest enemies of the thrones, who by his death and everlasting life crushed the power of sin, the devil, and death. Jesus, who promises his people that no one will snatch them from his hand, who gives us every spiritual blessing in him, who gives us an eternal life we can never lose, everlasting security, everlasting prosperity in God's king. This lament, I think, is written to teach the people to value the king God gives. Do we value and honour the king God has given to us? If we do, we'll respond with a deep and comprehensive loyalty. Which brings us secondly and finally to chapter 2. Long live the king. So here the crown has passed from one to another. And did you notice that the new king's beginnings are very promising? First of all, 2 verse 1, he inquires of the Lord. It's another sign in David, we've seen so many of these before, that he's a man after God's heart. And uh, when he asks where to go, that the Lord sends him to, to Hebron. Hebron may not mean very much to us, but it would have meant a huge amount to the first readers. It was uh, a special place for Abraham in the Old Covenant. A, a, a place that symbolized the promised land and God's promise of blessing through Abraham's offspring to the world. The God who promised that from Abraham kings would come. Kings of blessing. So here David is being positioned by the Lord as his king of worldwide blessing. And it's made official there in verse 4. The men of Judah come and they anoint David, they crown him king. And immediately David behaves as though he is God's chosen anointed king. Uh, do you remember the men of uh, Jabesh Gilead, which are mentioned here in chapter 2? 
Uh, we met them last time at the end of 1 Samuel 31. These were the men, brave, valiant men, who crept into Philistine territory after the dead of night, and they'd recovered Saul's body and then given him a proper burial. In life, Saul had chosen to be David's enemy, but see how David praises their loyalty to the king. Verse 5, for the loyalty they'd shown to Saul, verse 6, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. David is sending a clear message to them, you were right to be loyal to God's anointed, even Saul. But then notice a couple more things about what he says to these men. Did you notice how he acts as God's instrument of blessing to them in verse 6? May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you've done this thing. Or I will do this good to you, because you've done this thing. In other words, from now on, God will act through me. And then look at verse 7. What is David hinting at here in verse 7, do you think? Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. God has made me his king, says David. Your loyalty now is to me. Now, we don't know immediately how these men respond, though we can guess based on their behaviour in chapter 31. But you can see the opposite response very briefly there, quite in verses 8 to 11. The opposite of loyalty there in the form of Abner. Abner's Saul's cousin, Saul's military commander, and he takes Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and he makes him king instead. It's a direct challenge to David's rule. So these chapters, as we leave them, are giving us two paths we can take. There's the path of the young Amalekite in chapter 1, and this commander happened here in chapter 2, and it's the path of opposition. It's a path open to any of us. But we're warned here that opposing God's king means opposing God himself. It's a terrible mistake to make. The other path open to us, though, here is the path of loyalty. It's the path that David had walked when Saul was king. It's the path he now invites the men of Jabesh-Gilead to walk. It's certainly the path Jonathan walked. Did you notice how much of the lament is given over to Jonathan, Saul's son? What was Jonathan known for in one sound? Loyalty to God's king. And that's what becoming a Christian means. When I become a Christian, I swear ultimate and total loyalty to God's chosen king, the Lord Jesus, over all others. When we're forced to choose between our loyalty to our friends and our loyalty to Jesus, it means choosing Jesus. Between loyalty to our spouse, our children, our family, and Jesus, we'll choose Jesus. Between loyalty to our culture and its ideas and values, to our nation, even loyalty to ourselves, especially over ourselves, our ambitions, our desires, our dreams, every time, it means choosing Jesus. And if he is God's king, and God has made it clear that he is, he deserves from us nothing less. And not only, and this is where we'll finish, not only because of who he is, but also because of what this king has done. Don't you find yourself, as you think about what 2 Samuel 1, comparing the death of these Men, Saul and the Lord Jesus, both for the death of God's King 
but one died for his own sin and pride. And the other, the Lord Jesus, died for yours and for mine. He gave up his life so that we could belong to him. That's a king deserving of all of our allegiance. As the hymn we're about to sing puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these glimpses of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. We praise you that he is so much a better king than Saul that they barely deserve comparison. We thank you that he's an even better king than King David. Thank you that this king has died for our sin and not his own. And we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to be unswerving in our loyalty to him. In Jesus' name.